Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next offers listeners an in-depth analysis of the most pressing issues of the day. Our experts are given just six minutes to present, and this is followed by a question and answer period for deeper engagement. I think you will find this discussion to be both informative and provocative. This program is moderated to be politically neutral. Our speakers will give their opinions, and then we encourage you to make up your own mind. This week's topics include nutrition, political polling, global financial markets, the Peace Corps, the Not Boring Club, and non-traditional market research methods. Today, Todd Benson returns as my co-host. Todd and I became fast friends when we participated in the Sound Brothers training program 34 years ago. Tom worked as an Todd worked as an investment banker at Solomon and City for 21 years, and he is now the CEO of Harrington and sits on the board of several private businesses. Our first presenter today is Dr. David Katz, who is the director of Yale's Prevention Research Center and one of the world's leading experts on nutrition. He has a new book entitled How to Eat, All Your Food and Diet Questions Answered. Hopefully, David can cut through the misinformation on what to eat. Our second speaker is Andrew Gelman, who is a professor of statistics and political science at Columbia University and the author of the book, Red State, Blue State, Rich State, Poor State, Why Americans Vote the Way They Do. I've asked Andrew to discuss his recent paper on political polling entitled Information, Incentives, and Goals in Election Forecasts. Our third speaker is Sudi Mariapa. Sudi and I have been very good friends for over 30 years. I met Sudi when we worked at Solomon's uh, Tokyo office in the proprietary trading department. Our first assignment together was a complex bonded rib transaction for a province in Australia. Today, Sudi runs Global Risk Management for PIMCO, which is one of the largest investment firms in the world. I've asked Sudi to discuss what he sees happening in the financial markets. Our next speaker is Carol Spahn, who is a longtime friend of my co-host Todd Benson. Carol is the acting director of the Peace Corps, and we've asked her to speak about how the Peace Corps can change people's lives and be a life-changing experience. Our fifth speaker is Packy McCormick, who runs the Not Boring Club, which has a semi-weekly newsletter about business and pop culture. Packy's content has gone viral, and I want to learn how he successfully signed up 40,000 subscribers. I've also asked Packy to talk about technology and his recent article entitled Power to the Person. Our final speaker is Gunny Scarfo, who co-founded Nonfiction Research. Gunny employs non-traditional market research methods to uncover the deeper and sometimes darker emotions in consumers that drive buying behavior. Today's session includes some really incredible speakers, so I'm very excited to begin. I do want to mention uh, and make an announcement that next week there will be no What Happens Next because it is Easter Sunday, and I will be returning back to work the following Sunday, April 11th. Okay, let's begin with Dr. David Katz from Yale to discuss nutrition. Go ahead, David. Larry, thank you, and my thanks to Todd as well. Great to be with all of you. And I'm going to ask you to remember just a three-word recipe. Sense, science, balance. That's my message. That's the mantra in the book, and that's really all you need to invoke to know what we know about diet, know how important it is, understand how we know, and put it to good use. Just a quick preamble before we get to that three-word recipe. I want to make sure everyone understands how important diet truly is. We're all pretty horrified, I think, that the U.S. has suffered a mortality toll during the pandemic of over 500,000. I commend to your attention an op-ed, New York Times, August 26th, 2019, 
by Darius Mozafarian, Dean of Nutrition at Tufts, and Dan Glickman, former Secretary of Agriculture, entitled, Our Food is Killing Too Many of Us. Now remember that title, just Google that when you have the time. Our Food is Killing Too Many of Us. It cites the primary literature, so you don't need to worry about that, and makes the case that poor diet quality, something we have complete control over, is responsible for over 500,000 premature deaths in the United States every year. This is a pandemic, and it is indeed a pandemic because it affects other countries around the world. We export this quite effectively. This is a pandemic that hides in plain sight, but because it's in slow motion, uh, it seems that familiarity may breed, if not contempt, at least complacency. The other thing is diet is enormously important to the fate of the planet, whether or not there is an Amazon rainforest, whether or not there is a rainforest in Borneo, and we can get into those details later. So the the importance of diet to human health and planetary health could not be overstated. And to put it bluntly, diet is the single most potent predictor variable of all-cause mortality and total chronic disease in the modern world today. Full stop, mic drop, thanks for coming. All right, so that, that's the preamble. The three-word recipe, to remind you, is sense, science, balance, and that's how we know how to eat. Let's start with sense. Consider this. Every wild species on the planet knows what and how to eat. Does it really make sense that our oversized brains cause us to unknow how to eat? Does it really make sense that the invention of science, randomized trials, meta-analyses, caused us not to know what every wild animal knows from instinct, adaptation, and basically see one, do one, teach one, the, the habituation uh, of rearing? Uh, it doesn't make sense. And when things don't make sense, they're generally wrong. We are not clueless about the basic care and feeding of Homo sapiens and, and the fundamentals, what really matters most, uh, captured, by the way, uh, in seven words by Michael Pollan, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. And that's pretty much a meme, and it's a good one. That's just sense. Uh, Michael's not a scientist. He basically just scanned this landscape and said overwhelming consistency of patterns, overwhelmingly clear what works in populations that have traditional and heritage-based diets. Sense tells us we should eat real food, not hyper-processed, hyper-palatable frankenfood. Uh, we shouldn't eat too much, but frankly, if you eat the right kind of food, that takes care of itself. And our diet should be plant-predominant because we're that kind of animal. However, science has a lot to contribute. First, there are many gaps in our knowledge, and that's what science is for. Science drives with the force of a freight train towards hard-to-reach answers, but sense must lay the tracks. You may want to think of it this way. Science is the best means ever devised to answer questions, but only sense can pose good questions in the first place. I've devoted my 30-year career in, in academic medicine before I left Yale to run my own company to making sure there was a good synthesis of the available science. I've written four editions of a leading nutrition textbook. We had recourse to thousands of papers. I, I can tell you from firsthand experience in the ardors of textbook writing that there is vast, highly consistent science telling us basically that Michael Pollan was right. I summed it up in a paper that may be of interest to some of you in 2014. The title of that is, Can We Say What Diet Is Best For Health? And again, you can just Google my name, Katz, and can we say what diet is best? You'll pull that right up. And I've been directly involved in making the case that if we want science to tell us what's true about diet, we have to use science right. There is no one method 
that answers every question, much as you may hear about randomized controlled trials, any more than there's any one tool in a carpenter shop for every job. Hammer makes an excellent hammer. It makes a lousy saw. It makes a truly dreadful lathe. You need the right tool for the job. The same is true in science. And there is an incredible vigor in hybrid methods. And we have hybrid methods telling us across populations and lifetimes and generations and decades and mechanistic studies and everything that you might want to consider that we do best when we eat diets of real whole food plant predominant. And it, to, to unpack that a little bit for you, essentially that means if your diet really is mostly minimally processed vegetables, fruits, whole grains, beans, lentils, nuts, seeds, and plain water when you're thirsty. If it's mostly that, whatever else you do, you can't go too far wrong. If it isn't mostly that, no matter what else you're doing, you probably have got issues, and we could talk about those. And then finally, balance. When I say balance, I don't mean everything in moderation. What I mean is this. Balance is not something we make up. We're in balance when what we're doing is supportive of our native physiology. So for example, we're adapted to breathe Earth's atmosphere. That is the right balance of gases for us to thrive. Anything that shifts in either direction, higher or lower oxygen levels, for example, takes us out of balance. There's nothing pernicious or evil about higher or lower partial pressure of oxygen in the atmosphere. There's just the level that's right for the kind of animal we are based on our adaptations. Moving toward that kind of balance is always good. Moving away from that kind of balance and exacerbating imbalance is always bad. I think, unfortunately, there's an overlay of dogma about diet. And frankly, when dogma starts barking, uh, we have a hard time hearing the science or recognizing sense. And so, you know, we tend to talk about food in terms of good and evil. That's not the case. Saturated fat is bad because our diets contain too much and more of what you get too much of is bad. Sodium is bad for the same reason, so too for sugar. We think of potassium, calcium, magnesium is good, fiber is good, but that's because we tend to get too little and getting more is good. The three word recipe to understand what and how to eat, sense, science, balance. Larry, back to you and happy to take questions. Okay. Um... Let's, uh, I want to try something a little uh, out of the box just for a second. Um, one of the things we talk about is the value of your gut. And from time to time, uh, all of us have to take some antibiotics uh, for one reason or another. Um, how do we bring our gut back in balance after we've taken antibiotics? That's a good question. By the way, a quick shout out to my co-author, Mark Bittman, uh, who needs no introduction, I'm sure. Uh, but I wrote How to Eat with Mark, and you know I brought the nutrition knowledge to the table, but Mark really has this expansive knowledge of the whole foodscape, and it was really a privilege to collaborate with him. So, you know, it, it, there's more and more public discourse, more and more scientific inquiry, more and more awareness about the critical importance of our gut, because what we're really talking about is not just the, the cells that line our gastrointestinal tract or how important that organ system is, but the microbiome. Most of it lives there. A lot of it lives throughout our bodies, on our skin, other parts of us, but most of us lives, most of it lives in, in the gut. And, you know, it's just incredibly important because metabolites generated by the microbiome circulate throughout our bodies, influence our hormone levels, influence inflammation, immune system response, vascular health, and so forth. So the microbiome is incredibly important. And 
unfortunately, antibiotics are a form of chemical warfare that doesn't really differentiate between friend and foe. So the bacteria that are responsible for helping us thrive are wiped out along with bad guys. One of the things you try to do in medicine is be very judicious about use of antibiotics. First of all, don't use them when you don't need them. They're overused. And second, use the one with the narrowest spectrum so you don't kill off any of the friendly bugs you don't have to kill off. But as you say, Larry, inevitably after a course of antibiotics, there's been disruption to the microbiome. And I would make a very simple recommendation. Following a course of antibiotics, a course of probiotics. And probiotics are ingestible bacteria. Uh, many of them need to be refrigerated to maintain high quality counts, but they don't all need to be refrigerated. I take one myself called Peptiva. I can keep it at my bedside table. It's stable at room temperature. Uh, you want one that guarantees high colony counts. Generally, you want one with a, a diversity of strains, but essentially you're replacing the, the good, commensal, helpful bacteria that were wiped out by the antibiotic and helping to repopulate your gut. I think that makes sense. And, and you know, to be clear, you're right, there is the acute damage if you are prescribed antibiotics. I think there's a case for probiotics pretty generally, though, because we wind up being exposed to antibiotics in our food supply. The levels are less, but we all have some exposure. So just living in the modern world uh, is pretty hard on the microbiome. And when it's studied, we find that people living in modern countries tend not to have the optimal distribution of bacteria. So I generally recommend a probiotic. Okay. Um, you know, in your book, you talk about eggs a little bit. Um, what you mention is that eggs, you're, you're sort of neutral on it. Um, what, in some cases, as you say, it improves diet. In other cases, uh, in an all-plant-based diet, it worsens diet. But you said on balance, it matters what you replace eggs with. And I guess what, um, I just wanted to comment something that my father had told me he was a cardiologist. Uh, I asked him, you know, can I have eggs for breakfast? He said, sure. Uh, do me a favor. Why don't you have, um, have three eggs but two yolks? Um, let's increase the uh, relative amount of egg whites relative to the yolk. Um, you know, I, he said, I understand the yolk tastes delicious, but there's a limitation on how much saturated fat and cholesterol I want you to have for breakfast. Um, what are your thoughts on the combining, um, I'll call it, more egg whites in your combination of your eggs? Uh, by the way, my dad's a cardiologist, too. So we, we probably heard many of the same messages growing up. Uh, so, you know, first, at the, the high-level issue, Larry, as you say, eggs are good, eggs are bad, dairy is good, dairy is bad, this is good, that grains are good, grains are bad. All of this is subject to the instead of what stipulation. And, and that is routinely ignored both in the science. So studies fail to ask the question, what was replaced when we asked people to eat more eggs or, or anything else? Uh, what was bumped out of the diet? Uh, and how did it reverberate through the diet? Because you know, putting a food in or taking a food out is like tossing a pebble in a pond. It, it changes the overall composition of the diet. So where did, where did you start and where did you land? That's crucial for eggs and everything else. In general, you know, the, the, the thinking about cholesterol, and, and really egg yolk is a highly concentrated source of cholesterol, but a fairly negligible source of saturated fat. We, we get a lot of our saturated fat from meat and dairy. We get relatively little of it from eggs. So the question then becomes, you know, how important is dietary cholesterol? 
dietary cholesterol is measured in milligrams. Our intake of fats is measured in grams. Uh, that, that's a you know three orders of magnitude difference, and it does make a huge difference in terms of the impact on our blood levels of cholesterol. So saturated fat is much more impactful than cholesterol. And as a result of that, really good scientists, including some close friends of mine who were involved in the 2015 Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee for the United States, said, you know, we can stop telling people to worry about dietary cholesterol because when they get other things right, it's unimportant. And if they don't get other things right, the other things are so much more important than cholesterol, it's really just a distraction. So it kind of dropped out of the official recommendations. I was okay with that. But I was okay with that principally because our diets are pretty crummy to begin with. And in the context of a really bad baseline diet, and that is the, the, the typical American diet, uh, cholesterol is the least of our worries. We have much more to worry about from fatty meats, high intake of sodium, saturated fat, added sugar. And so it's, you know, essentially it's just, yeah, it's not good for you, but it's too small a problem to focus on. We've got as the saying goes, bigger fish to fry. The other thing I'd note just very quickly, and, and Mark and I emphasize this in the book, I, I think we should all be looking at optimal diet through three lenses, not just one. So the one we're talking about is, is what is directly good for human health. And as a physician, that, that's always been what matters to me. But as I, I stated at the start, Diet has a massive influence on planetary health and, you know, whether or not we cut down the rainforest in the Amazon to graze cattle so we can eat more meat or raise the rainforest in Borneo for more palm plantations so we can eat more processed foods with palm oil. So we really do need to be thinking about the impact of our dietary patterns at scale. And animal foods in general, including eggs, tend to have a much greater environmental footprint than plant foods. And then there's finally the issue of, of, you know, decency, ethics, how we treat other animals. If you're going to eat eggs, you know, whether you, whether you keep all the yolks or discard one as per Larry's father, uh, make sure you source them from a place where you know the hens are being treated decently because in factory farms, that's not the case. And I don't think any decent person wants gratuitous cruelty on the menu. I want to ask a question about your opening statement about 500,000 deaths from bad diet. Um, you know, in, when they asked smokers how much life expectancy change uh, was reduced because of smoking, uh, my understanding is that um, smokers overemphasized the risk of death by, uh, uh, by many times. They thought smoking was much more dangerous than it was, and they continued to smoke. Um, I'm wondering about this diet as well. If you take someone who is not overweight um, and who uh, doesn't have, I'll call it one of the chronic diseases, how important is diet to a change in their expected loss of life? In other words, if you had someone, I'll call it a, a bad diet, say you would call it a red meat diet, and someone who has a plant-based diet, and both are generally healthy at the outset, what do you think the reduction in, in the total number of loss of life would be? maybe with a, a mean and a standard deviation? It, well, it's a really good question because we're really good. And, and you know, I say this as a physician with 30 years of clinical practice, we're really good at forestalling death. And, and so I'd sort of turn it around and say 500,000 premature deaths. But premature just means, you know, dying before the full life expectancy in the United States, which before the pandemic was about 78 years. 
So if you die at 75, it's a premature death. And, and you know, frankly, because we have the capacity to live with vitality well into our 80s and 90s, it, it truly is a premature death. And, and many other countries have longer life expectancy. But the, the simple fact is, you know, people can have really advanced coronary artery disease and many complications of diabetes. And modern medicine is still pretty good at patching them back together so they don't die. And I've been involved in that for much of my career. What we can't do is restore vitality. I've always tended to think, Larry, and it's why I went on to train in preventive medicine after studying internal medicine. Uh, You know, I kind of had the impression I was being taught how to be one of the king's horses and one of the king's men. We could never put true vitality back together again. We were basically trying to unscramble an egg. So, you know, we, we prevented total calamity, but we didn't restore health. So you know, I would say that the premature deaths generally are on the order of three to five years. I think that's highly significant, but it depends how bad the diet is, what you compare it to, you know, whether you're comparing to an optimal diet. So if you compare it to blue zone diets, for example, quickly for those who don't know, the blue zones are five places around the world described by National Geographic fellow Dan Butner, where people routinely live to be 100. It's very common. And those who don't live to be 100 routinely live into their 90s, and they do it with vitality. They don't get chronic disease first. They don't get dementia. And we know that they all eat real food, not too much, mostly plants. If we set that as the benchmark and say that's the possible, because these are five very diverse populations. This is Ikaria, Greece, Sardinia, Italy, Okinawa, Japan, Loma Linda, California, and the Nicoya Peninsula in Costa Rica. These are not genetically alike. These are diverse populations who share elements of culture and lifestyle. So that suggests this is possible for all of us. If we were to say, you know, if we weren't living with the, you know, typical American seafood diet, I see food and I eat it even if it glows in the dark, but if we were routinely physically active, got enough sleep, weren't stressed out, avoided toxins like tobacco, excess alcohol, and ate optimally, we would routinely live to be in our 90s to 100 without chronic disease. Well, then, you know, we're talking about 20 years of life lost. It's, it's hard to give you a mean and standard deviation because I would have to push back and say, tell me what benchmark you want me to use. If we want to use life expectancy in the U.S., that's already dragged down by poor diet, poor lifestyle. If we want to use an example where people get diet and lifestyle right, then the loss is actually quite staggering. But even so, I would argue that the greater toll is not loss of years from life, it's loss of life from years. Because what kills you when you eat badly for a lifetime is not quick. It's slow. It's chronic disease. It's obesity leading to insulin resistance, leading to type 2 diabetes, leading to coronary disease, degradation of multiple organ systems, nerve damage, eye damage, brain damage. It's complications of dementia, which is generally insulin resistance of the brain and related to many of the same risk factors. It's cancer that takes years and even decades to develop, but is fueled by a bad diet that tips the immune system out of balance and on and on it goes. So I I don't think I can give you a a mean and standard deviation because I don't really know what the reference standard ought to be. But if we compare ourselves to ourselves, it's several years. If we compare ourselves to the optimal, it may be a couple of decades. But even so, the greater toll is the loss of vitality over an extended period of time. And it's incredible how many Americans live with a burden of chronic disease. Six in 10 American adults have at least one major chronic disease. Four in 10 have two or more. Hey, David, this is Todd. I have a question for you. Where do you think we are kind of in the slope of the curve? I mean, I look at things like, you know, the 
in highly anticipated IPO of Oatly and the fact that Beyond Meat's got an $8 billion market cap, and there seems to be a lot of awareness around, at least in the financial community, about the potential of plant-based diets and plant-based foods and all those sorts of things. And I'm just wondering if that's just made, you know, kind of me being in my New York City bubble, or are we basically at a point where we're no longer getting worse and we may be on the precipice and there may be cause for optimism? Yeah, well, great question, Scott. And I, you know, I, I think it's a bit of both. Um, you know, there's more than one way to eat badly, and Americans seem committed to exploring them all. But maybe we're running out. And, and one of the reasons I'm optimistic is, you know, we've tried every cockamamie, silly, quick fix diet under the sun. <laughs> At some point, you have to say, okay, you know, we can't really think of any more of those. I guess we just have to eat well, damn it. And I think there is this confluence of interest in human and planetary health. You know, I think a lot of what's driving innovation related to meat alternatives is conservation-driven. You know, it's the notion, particularly among young people, millennials, that, you know, we're going to wind up in a world where there are no lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. Are we really going to be okay with having done that? And if the answer is no, then, you know, we, we really need to do something about it. And we like the idea of doing judo rather than karate. In other words, you know, instead of arguing with people, you know, you want to eat meat, but you can't, and then losing the battle, we'll say, okay, we'll create a meat alternative for you that satisfies your palate, gives you what you say you want, but eliminates the damage to the planet. And, you know, maybe we can still have orangutans and tigers in the world and whales in the ocean. What do you think? Most people shrug their shoulders and say, I'll try it. If I like it, I'll join your team. So I kind of see the meat alternatives as a highly effective gateway drug. You know, I'm hoping that people move on to less processed versions of plant foods once they rehabilitate their taste buds. But I'm very much in favor, and I do think it's a significant indication of a confluence of multiple interests in our health, in the health of the planet, and a timely opportunity. We now have the technology to do that. And I think, you know, really clever people took advantage of the moment and they got it just right. I I think it is significant. I think we're at a tipping point. I also think there's more interest in some fundamentals about food, eating clean, shorter ingredient list. You know, I, I think there's more and more resonance uh, with Michael Pollan's meme, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. That, that seems to be a recurring theme when I search for consumer trends. People are interested in clean eating. Now, they're still quite gullible and easily talked into nonsense. So, you know, the competition from fools and fanatics isn't going to go away anytime soon. But I am optimistic. I, I think things are improving. And, you know, I'm trying to be part of that solution. I, I left academia after 30 years, founded a company called Diet ID, and we're on a mission to make diet a vital sign. You know, there's an expression from the world of business. We don't tend to manage what we don't routinely measure. And I imagine nobody listening into this call has had a comprehensive diet assessment that told you, here's your diet quality, your diet type, your nutrient intake levels, because the tools are too onerous. So we built one that can do that in 60 seconds. It's easy. It's even fun. And we think then if everybody is alerted to what their diet is and that's compared directly to what it could be and they understand the value proposition, we can get a lot more people into the game. So you know, I think there, there are many factors that tell us we're at or near a tipping point, and that encourages me. I want to talk dairy for a second. Um, in the... In your book, uh, you were moderately, slightly negative versus neutral on dairy, and the reason was saturated fat. 
Um, and I just wanted to ask one question about Frankenfood and then one question about yogurt. So um, I have a protein shake and I use uh, a whey protein powder. Um, my instinct is that you would call that Frankenfood and therefore should be removed from my diet. On the other hand, you don't mind dairy as long as it was not the saturated fat. How do you turn on uh, protein powder, whey powder? So I should be clear that I, you know I use Frankenfood, you know maybe a, a bit glibly, uh, you know just to kind of castigate the the, the array of, of willfully engineered addictive junk foods that Michael Moss writes about. And by the way, folks, another reference for you that I highly recommend. This was a New York Times Magazine cover story by Michael Moss, Pulitzer Prize winner. His book Hooked is just out. This was entitled The Extraordinary Science of Addictive Junk Food. If you haven't seen that, definitely recommend it. So this is not by accident. You know, essentially, the, the frankenfoods I speak of, it's not just that they glow in the dark, but they've been designed by scientists using functional MRI machines to massively overstimulate the appetite center and the ventral medial hypothalamus of the human brain so that when they say, bet you can't eat just one, they can laugh about it all the way to the bank. You know, I mean, it, it's really a threat. So I, I mean those foods, and I don't specifically mean the addition of an isolated protein concentrate to make a smoothie or a shake. You know, that's, it's not quite as pure as just, you know, e eating whole foods. But I, I have advocated, I'm a public health pragmatist, and so throughout my career I've advocated that we not make perfect the enemy of good. And I think anytime we get overly dogmatic and you know, you, you must eat one specific way and, and any transgression, you know, <laughs> put out your hand so we can smack it with a ruler, I, I think that's a grave mistake. Uh, I'll be honest with you, Larry, I, I, I like uh, corn chips and salsa and there's no question about it. I mean, the, the corn chips have three ingredients. Usually it's whole grain corn, some kind of oil and salt. But, you know, it's certainly not a whole food, but I really enjoy it. You know, I don't eat it every day, but periodically, corn chips, salsa, good beer. I mean, it's a, it's a terrific combination. And bean dip or no bean dip? Uh, yeah, sure, bean dip too. Uh, and, and, you know, the other thing we need to keep in mind, food should be a source of pleasure. Let, let me make a, a, a comment that may surprise you. I don't know that Mark and I said it quite this way in the book, but I, I have said it this way to my patients. We fail to think what health is for. Health takes on moral overtones, as if health is at the end of a you know, physician's admonishing finger. You're, you're, not, you're a bad person if you're not a healthy person. That's nonsense. That, that completely misses the point of what health is for. Healthy people have more fun. The reason to care about your personal health is your life is better, other things being equal. Your life is better when you're healthy. So if the whole point of health is to have a better life, at some line that you're crossing, you say, yeah, but I'm giving up so much pleasure from the things I want to eat that the net effect on my quality of life is to reduce it. You know, I look at the combination of years in life, life in years, you know, there's some level of asceticism where I'm giving up more than I'm gaining. Don't do that. You are the boss. That's the sweet spot for all of us where we optimize the pleasure we get from food and it ought to be a source of pleasure when we have that luxury as, as most of us here today do. Sadly, many people around the world don't. But when you have that opportunity, food should be a source of pleasure. Health should also be a source of pleasure. And what I advocate for is size up the two of them, maximize the sum, and live there. That's the place to be. 
David, thank you very much. We're going to go on to our next speaker, uh, who is Sudi Mariapa. Sudi uh, is one of my oldest friends. Uh, we worked together uh, when he was at Solomon Tokyo. Uh, he is now the global head of risk management at PIMCO, which is a very large fixed income investment management firm. Sudi, why don't you start? Great. Larry asked me to talk a little bit about the markets, and I said, God, you know, very vast subjects. So let me narrow in and see what's at the heart of the markets these days, which is really what we use to discount a lot of our valuations, the fixed income market or the rates markets. So what I'm going to talk to you a little bit is what's happened in the fixed income market, what's changed, you know, what's changed around expectations, whether it be around the Fed or inflation expectations given fiscal policy, and what it means for markets overall. Rates are higher. If we think about the discount rates or the rate, the benchmark rate for so many assets, it's really the 10-year Treasury rate, which is close to 1.7%. That's up 75 basis points since the beginning of the year, back to the level we saw in 2019. This move up in rates hasn't really been an orderly trend, but kind of a bumpy ride for both rates and other asset classes. We've got a lot of government supply. For example, in February, we had a very weak seven-year auction of 60 billion seven-year treasuries. The tail in the auction was four basis points, and intraday, rates moved about 20 basis points, which is three to four times what we'd normally expect. That was the weakest price action following supply since the taper tantrum back in 2014. Rates have also moved in the real economy. What we're seeing is mortgage rates right now around 3.25%. That's from a low we saw a little while back at 2.5%. Surely it's causing some consternation among the tens of thousands of newly minted mortgage bankers and real estate agents. Back in February, along with the move up in rates, we saw the tech sector lose over a trillion in market cap. Coincidence? You know, perhaps. This is all even with a backdrop, as the Fed reminds us, they're at zero rates for policy rates and plan to be there for a while. So what's driving this change in the markets? You know, I'll pause here for a second and say, I have a bit of caution about causality and narratives in the market because when I think back to uh, Nobel laureate Richard Thaler, he uses a 2003 quote. The headline was, equities up, Saddam Hussein captured. Later in the day, as prices retreated, it says, equities down, Saddam Hussein captured. So with this disclaimer, my narrative is that the changes the market's pricing is, is just some shifts in one, Fed policy and how the Fed will operate, two, the fiscal stimulus that we'll see and some concerns about fiscal policy trajectory, coupled with the growing optimism of the reopening of the post-COVID economy. So when we step back and think about bond yields, I'd like to use a very simple framework, which is bond yields really are a combination of policy rates, overnight policy rates, inflation expectations over time, and a term premium. The first change in terms of policy rates of the Fed, last summer, the Fed clearly stated their mandate is full employment, but in big, bold letters, it's broad and inclusive full employment. And for us not to think about a simple inflation target of 2% PCE, but an average target of 2%, allowing for greater price increases than the Fed target. Second, in addition to the Fed, we talk about fiscal policy expectations, because 
news should be discounted in the market. What changed? What was the surprise? At the start of the year, I think very few of us would have anticipated a fiscal package or fiscal stimulus the size we've seen of $1.9 trillion before we had that change of control in the Senate. Just on a side note, you know, many of my friends that have expressed concern about this fiscal package were not that concerned in 2018 when we also had a $1.9 trillion package that was passed with an economy that had a much lower unemployment rate. So if we think about policy rates and inflation, what's the market pricing in right now? The way we tease that out is really looking at the forward rate or what the market is implying for the forward rate in the future. So if we look at the five-year rate in five years' time, that five-year forward, five-year rate in the Treasury market is around 2.5%. If we look at what the Fed put out as a summary in their summary of economic projections, their longer-term dot on where Fed policy would go is also 2.5%. Back in 2018, the Fed did raise rates up to 2.5%. And what we started to see was the interest rate sensitive sectors in the economy actually started to turn over. We did start seeing some slowdown. So that could possibly see the direction or the ultimate direction of where Fed policy rates may be and what the market's pricing in. The second thing that we can look for in terms of besides policy rates is, again, that inflation expectations. We look at the TIPS market for that. The TIPS market really shows us what's real return, what's the compensation over inflation you should expect. And when we tease out that same five-year forward, five-year rate, that says that you should get about 0.4% over CPI as your compensation. That is the real rate in forward space. It also teases out a forward inflation rate of 2.4% for CPI, which is slightly different than PCE, but very close to the PCE target for the Fed. So despite all the headlines on inflation expectations and concern, we have seen some volatility, but the actual pricing in the bond market is looking through any near-term rise in inflation prints that we may see with the post-COVID opening and the 6 to 8% economic growth we're likely to see this year. The rates are more in line with longer-term trend growth and probably incorporating the fact that we can't look at rates just in isolation in the U.S. We have to look at the fact that global monetary policy and global rates are very low and global monetary policy is very accommodative. If I pause and say, what does this mean for markets? Inflation expectations and concern about fiscal policy will likely remain, and the market may continue to be focused on the upside risks to inflation, despite the fact that we've been under the Fed target for the last 10 years. That near-term volatility may mean remain vol, you know, elevated. So we should anticipate spillover into other markets, especially if that rise in yield is more that rise in real yield or the compensation you require over inflation. On the flip side, what could cause bond yields to come down? Well, risk premiums are skinny. Asset valuations are you know, in some sectors are frothy. So bond yields should act as a good portfolio diversifier, especially when we start thinking about these projected cash flow and earnings expectations in 2027, 28, 29 that people quote in pricing assets. Once they start to look shaky, bonds will look better. 
You know, in one of the signs that I always thought about was in the big short in the movie, when they think about causality, so one of the quote is, it's not what you don't know that gets you in trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. That's fantastic, Sidney. Thank you. Um, let's start out with um, the fiscal package. So uh, pre-Georgia, uh, the talk was maybe we get 1.2, maybe we get a trillion. Um, and now we got 1.9. We've also had it coterminous with um, the vaccines uh, being widely distributed and getting distributed faster than expected. And so uh, I think what, and then furthermore, um, Biden is on the tape this last week saying he wants to go big on infrastructure, something like $3 trillion. Uh, these are numbers that are just hard to fathom uh, in, in, in our lifetimes anyway. When you have such an enormous uh, fiscal stimulus, how do you think that will end up impacting uh, both the bond market and then you know the equity markets as well? You know, sorry to go back to this and thing. We've got to think about what's new, right? I mean, I, I, you said that basically the Georgia thing was a little bit of a surprise, so you had a little bit of an increase there. So is the market not discounting the size of the infrastructure package or further stimulus? So if we get a surprise and we start to see that the package is either front-loaded or that the traction or the pace of growth increases, I think the question really becomes, can the market look through the short-term inflation prints and growth? And I'll still point back to the fact that it's, it is the U.S. We're still tethered to real rates and to economic activity globally. So, you know, some of the things that people point out to is, oh, God, you know, look at airline tickets or post-COVID. And we may even see some double-digit prints and one-time adjustments in price level to certain sectors. But I don't know if we can really push this longer term to say trend growth is really going to shift up way above that 2 to 3% range or longer-term inflation can be sustained rather than just a one-time price level. I'm not saying we won't get volatility as the market romances that, but the base case right now, just given what we are tethered to, doesn't seem like it's going to be uncontrolled, but more rate vol if you start to get you know, more surprises on the fiscal side or in terms of traction on inflation. Um, you talked about volatility and dislocation. Um, I guess if someone at the beginning of the year had priced an option, uh, implied volatilities for the tender note probably would have been around just 50, 60 basis points. And let's just say that's 50. And um, and then if someone said, well, what would be the volatility for the next for the first quarter? Uh, that would be half that, around 25 basis points. And yet you said that we had a 25 basis point move on one day in February, and we had a, a total move of 75 basis points in the first quarter. Um, why do you think the volatility was so much greater? And going back to the Saddam captured analysis, who cares if the volatility was uh, was so high? Um, why why do we want it to be an orderly change? Why not have a discontinuity? And what will that mean if it has the sort of volatility as it spills over into other markets? Larry, good question. I, I think for stability, we want some volatility. We don't want large moves you know, that cause systemic risk. But if you think about it, if you don't have volatility, you may get crowding, you may get investor concentration. So that complacency 
that you get could create you know frothy asset prices and asset bubbles. So I, I don't think you know low volatility is sort of a an objective function that that's great for financial stability. But in terms of you know going back to you know how much volatility, you're right. One of the things as a risk manager I look at is you look to say is volatility higher than you would expect it or what's being priced in. So that means the amount of risk that you take, you need to scale back a little bit, right? And what we've seen in, for example, uh, if we look at equity markets, VIX for most of the first quarter was trading in the mid-20s and almost 30 at certain times. Now that's also slipped back. That's one indication of volatility. But in other pockets, like for example, in the bond market, what we had was not only did we have a slightly higher level of volatility, but the actual realized volatility, you know, what you saw, as you said, in terms of these one-day moves or a period of moves, was higher than what the insurance market or the option market priced in. So that's kind of a warning sign to saying, hey, you're getting some dislocations, price discovery is not as clean as it should be. So one of the, the questions that I always say is, is this a market that's going to be facing tail risk or very broad-based risk or air pockets as people try to transfer like one set of bonds or one type of risk to another buyer that has a different valuation framework. And we've seen this volatility within sectors across equity market, across emerging market currencies, and across different parts of the yield curve. Um, when we first started our careers at Solomon Brothers, um, I'm thinking particularly of January 1994 when there was a regime change at the Fed. Um, fixed income markets went a little crazy, and when they did, it sort of disrupted um, certain players that had uh, carry trades on. In particular, I could think of Orange County that went bankrupt because of their over-reliance on their uh, long position in uh, intermediate long-term rates. Do you see other, uh, if we do have a fundamental mis uh, repricing in the yield curve, do you see uh, massive disruptions as it relates to specific financial institutions or other buyers of fixed income instruments that have bet the house that rates would remain low? Yeah, you know, carry is a drug, Larry. I mean, if you think about a lot of the deleveraging that's occurred, not just in 94, but other places where even you know, before the great financial crisis, a lot of the carry trades is people leverage up to get higher returns. And when I think right now, if you're saying, are you seeing a lot more carry in the rate market itself, you know, I, I don't know for sure, but as I scan around, you, you, you're not seeing as much as you would anticipate, you know, because, for example, a lot of the carry in the 90s was in the mortgage market. Where right now, a lot of the purchase and larger participants in the mortgages has been, the dominant player has been the Fed. If we sort of look back and saying, are we, if the market gets too complacent about how, long, how much interest rates can move, then they'll start taking longer-term rate risk and just funding it short-term. Haven't seen it yet, but doesn't mean you can't be cautious about that complacency. So you know, one of the questions people ask is, does the Fed care if rates rise or you know, will they do something? And that gets back to, does that rise in rates affect financial conditions? And when we say financial conditions, hey, does it affect the economy, the ability to borrow money, right? So they look at whether it's corporate spreads or the equity market and the dollar itself, does it, does it relate to currency vol and other factors that's causing people to reduce or be able to not borrow credit. So if you have a sharp 
move in rates that's disruptive to financial conditions, I would expect that you might get some response from the Fed if they have their current stance. However, my thinking is that if you have a rise in rates that's associated with growth or growth expectations or even inflation expectations, it's not a bad rise in rates, and it could actually act as a governor against some of the other speculative moves. Uh, just to think more globally for a second, um, one of the interesting aspects about the world is that we all don't respond to the vaccination programs at the same pace. Mm -hmm. um, Israel is leading the pack. U.S. is doing pretty good. Uh, Europe and Japan are not doing very well at all. And that will, I imagine, slow down their rate of recovery. Um, but at some point, the Japanese and the Europeans will be vaccinated, in which case that would be a nice kicker coming out of this. Do you think that, um, how do you think about the context of slow European and Japanese growth? Uh, how would that affect near-term uh, fixed income markets? Fixed income markets, if it's global growth, yields should sort of move, not in tandem, but in relation to each other. And what we've seen is that most of the move in yields has been, like as you said, in those countries, for example, the U.S., even the U.K. or Australia. It's not the only cause. You know, like I said, there's other factors affecting rates. But I would say that if the reopening is slower, then you would anticipate that monetary policy, prices, et cetera, would remain muted. And those yields would not get back to anywhere real. And then for the audience, we're still sitting on 10-year Bund levels, the German government rate, at negative 30 basis points, negative 35 basis points, and 10-year JGBs at eight basis points, very close to zero. Incredible. All right, Sudi, thank you very much. We're going to go on to our next speaker. Uh, that's Carol Spahn. Carol is the acting director of the Peace Corps, and she's going to talk about life-transforming experiences. Carol, please go ahead. Great. Thank you, Larry, and thank you, Todd. Um, so let me just start by saying that the toughest job you'll ever love is a fitting slogan for a federal agency with a mission as audacious as world peace and friendship. Since 1961, more than 240,000 Americans have joined Peace Corps to serve in the far reaches of 140 countries around the world. At a budget of $410 million annually, yielding approximately 7,000 volunteers, it is cost-effective grassroots diplomacy that pays dividends for decades, both here at home and abroad. So how does it work? Volunteers range in age from 20 to 87. They serve at the invitation of host governments. The focus is not on bringing in money, but rather on building capacity and relying on locally available resources. Most serve for two years, although some technical assignments can last from three to 12 months. Volunteers are expected to learn one of 177 local languages, share American culture with their communities, and share foreign cultures back home. The fundamental premise is that we create world peace and friendship, one relationship at a time, by living and working together. So what does this look like in practice? No service is the same. We send volunteers to teach, to work at rural health centers, train small businesses, plant trees, and work with small farmers and youth. They live on a monthly allowance on par with the local community, which can be as little as $160 a month. Some have running water and electricity, some have neither. Some live with host families, some have their own apartments or huts. Some live in the coldest corners of the globe and sleep with their vegetables, literally, to keep them from freezing overnight, while others serve in the hottest places and sleep outside with hammocks and mosquito nets in the hopes of catching even a slight breeze. We don't promise that anything will be easy, nor do we guarantee results. 
new language, new culture, far from family and friends, low pay, why would anyone in their right mind sign up? People who join Peace Corps want to be challenged, and they don't want to sit on the sidelines when it comes to solving pervasive problems associated with poverty. They are risk takers, resilient optimists, and creative problem solvers who learn to embrace uncertainty and accept that failure will be a part of growth. It is definitely not for everyone, but the opportunity is profound, and those who sign up are fundamentally transformed. In a recent Harvard Business Review article, two anthropologists describe a liminal experience, and they draw some parallels to our global experience during COVID. A liminal experience, they share, involves a prolonged separation from normal ways of being and doing. They are, by definition, quote, disturbing and disruptive, but they also represent potent opportunities for reflection, discovery, and even reinvention. A Peace Corps volunteer can't help but to reinvent themselves after uprooting from the U.S. and living an intentionally disruptive existence in every conceivable way for two years. Volunteers' worldviews are challenged, their values questioned, and their resilience tested. They get comfortable being dropped into any situation and figuring it out, they gain perspective and empathy, and they learn the importance of listening first. These skills are highly sought after when volunteers return to the U.S. by the Foreign Service, the federal government, and international nonprofits, and also companies like Accenture, Delta, Disney, and MasterCard, who are all official employers of national service. I would argue that these skills are precisely what we need as Americans to heal from the divisiveness that has pervaded our country and to emerge from this pandemic in a way that will make history proud. As Peace Corps celebrates its 60th anniversary, we are looking back on our history and planning for our future. When Peace Corps started, it ramped up to 44 countries and 7,300 volunteers in just two years. Budget and safety permitted, we've responded when countries have called. When communism fell across Eastern Europe, following the end of apartheid in South Africa, and after civil wars in places like El Salvador and Liberia. Peace Corps helps nations at the grassroots level to heal, to bridge divides, and to provide hope, inspiration, and connection. Beyond the national landscape, Peace Corps has contributed to large-scale public health efforts. In the 60s and 70s, it was smallpox vaccination. In the 80s, guinea worm eradication. Since the early 90s, HIV prevention. And we're gearing up now to respond to COVID. We were part of these efforts at the last mile, reaching some of the most isolated and vulnerable populations. We concentrate a significant portion of our programming on youth, which is critical given the youth bulges that are looming or underway in many developing countries. In 2019 alone, volunteers taught 334,000 students, reached 166,000 people with HIV prevention, and worked with 64,000 girls to promote life skills and girls empowerment. But at the end of the day, our impact is not measurable in numbers. Volunteers plant seeds. There are hundreds of thousands of people around the world who have been impacted by Peace Corps volunteers and who attribute their success, at least in part, to the volunteers who inspired them. I have had a vice president, ambassadors, ministers, and a Supreme Court justice tell me with great pride about volunteers who impacted them or how they visited rural communities in their official capacity and saw a Peace Corps volunteer hard at work speaking their language. It's incredibly powerful. So where is Peace Corps now? Due to the pandemic, last March, for the first time in our 60-year history, Peace Corps evacuated almost 7,000 volunteers from villages around the world in just eight days as borders were closing. We're getting closer to returning to service in all 61 countries we departed are eager to have us back and others are lining up to welcome us. In the meantime, we've launched a virtual service pilot. 
We have volunteers working with 85 organizations online and staff conducting virtual workshops. Following a year of divisiveness and isolation, we are meeting this moment thoughtfully and intentionally. So I'll leave you now with a quote that I shared when I was country director with the almost 500 volunteers who served during my tenure in Malawi, one of the poorest countries in the world. Quote, life begins at the end of your comfort zone. We are currently accepting applications. Back to you, Larry. Fantastic. Um, I guess I, I want to start out by asking, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know why during your speech I started thinking about uh, Stripes, the movie Stripes and the movie uh, Private Benjamin, about the wrong type of people that join the armed forces. Um, and I'm wondering uh, who succeeds and who fails when they take on uh, something like the Peace Corps. Uh, can you describe the type of people that succeed and the type of people uh, that this, this process doesn't work for? Oh, that's a great question. And, you know, sometimes it's, it's very unexpected. Um, the kinds of people who do well in Peace Corps are those who are ready to, to suspend themselves, who are ready to invest in relationships, um, and who are really comfortable with that ambiguity and uncertainty. Um, the, the folks I've seen struggle the most are those who um, really want to know exactly what success looks like and exactly how to get there um, and are, are very rigid in their approaches. Um, it, you know, and it's, it's interesting, you know, you see some of those, those folks who might be overachievers in an academic setting um, because they know exactly what it takes to get an A. And that is not the way things work in Peace Corps where you have to really immerse yourself in another culture, build those relationships, understand how things work. And, you know, there was a, a great story of um, a, a volunteer who was struggling and couldn't get her head teacher to um, work with her on various projects. And the program manager told her, okay, well, I, I want you to go and have tea with that head teacher every Sunday. Like, well, what are you what are you talking about? You know, that what's that going to do? And sure enough, she went over every Sunday and had tea. And, you know, after a couple of months of doing that, sure enough, she had a, a great partner for the rest of her service. Hey Carol, the, Carol um, Bunny Scarfo. Oh I, I was gonna jump in with a quick question. I just want to say I've I've really seen this up close. Uh, I spent two summers in Ghana when I was in college, uh, not in the Peace Corps, but uh, ended up around a bunch of Peace Corps folks. Um, and I wondered, you, you touched on this in your six minutes, but uh, I wanted to give you a chance to expand on it because it's something I'm curious about is the specific skills that people pick up in this kind of work and uh, the ways in which those skills are um, like right for the jobs over the next however many years. Uh, if you could dive into that, I think you mentioned a couple, but you sort of zoomed past it. I wanted to give you a chance to dive into that a little more. Sure, thank you, it's a, it's a great question. And I think the skills that volunteers um, learn are absolutely relevant today, um, especially with you know, calls for racial equity, for inclusion, for awareness of, of difference and celebration of difference, um, and, and really stopping to understand and um, listen you know, to others' experience and, and to value that experience, um, those soft skills are incredibly important and, and you know, absolutely required at every level in every business today. Um, some of the other things that we see is just that, um, as I said, tolerance of ambiguity and willingness to fail. 
And that's something that we don't teach in the United States, right? Everyone yeah. is geared up, you succeed, you get your A's and you get into a good college and then you work a good job and it's, it's all, you know, we, we create this illusion that, that life happens in a straight line and that you can control all of these factors. Um, you know, when in fact you're never um, sure what life might throw at you at, at any given time. And volunteers experience that. I had someone from a high-tech um, uh, sort of biotech um, company say he looks for Peace Corps volunteers when he's recruiting. And I said, why? He said, well, in this industry, you have to fail often and fail fast, and you have to be comfortable with that. And that's in high tech, that's what we want. We want people to try new things, fail, move on. And a lot of people can't handle that. Um, so I, I think a lot of these adaptability questions, living with uncertainty, creative problem solving, are all skills that, that volunteers learn during their Peace Corps service. Interesting. Okay. Carol, this is, uh, this is Todd. First, you know, kind of thank you for your service and congratulations to the Peace Corps on its 60th anniversary. I'm curious a little bit about basically how you would say, you know, kind of like all businesses changed so much over the years, and how has the Peace Corps changed? Even, you know, kind of, and you, you frame it over the last five, ten years, you, the, the dependency of your, the, the, the time that you've been involved, you know, kind of how have you seen it change in terms of whether it's, you know, the, the, its mission, it's the types of people involved, the activity, the importance of technology, what your, the, the, the day in, day out job, just you know, in what ways has it changed? Wow, that's a big question. Um, I, I think we're all constantly evolving. Um, what I've seen, you know, if you, if you go back to the 60s and, and 70s, um, you know, and you're putting a volunteer out in, in a village and, you know, they were really um, on their own, right, and, and quite isolated. Um, you know, as, you know, we have now WhatsApp and, um, you know, all kinds of, of technology, volunteers are in contact with each other, they're in contact with home, they're in contact, you know, with, with the office on a regular basis. So that level of isolation is not there. Um, so I think that's, that has definitely transformed sort of how we work and we're seeing now with the pandemic what the possibilities are. So, you know, we can have um, to the extent that there is bandwidth and, and um, you know, connection options, we can, you know, fundamentally uh, change how we train people while they're, while they're in service. Um, that's really exciting. This virtual service pilot that we've got, we've got going on is also incredibly exciting. Um, where people who have served already can come back to the U.S. and stay engaged in a formal capacity. Many of them do it informally anyway, but we can do that in a more formal capacity. Um, I will say development in general um, has moved to a more sort of results-based, um, you know, metrics, data-driven, um, evidence-based approach and Peace Corps has definitely adopted those approaches, um, you know, as we've moved forward and, you know, we look forward to using this moment to, to see how we can continue to adapt. Great. And so now there's the Peace Corps, there's AmeriCorps too, which I guess basically got a kind of big appropriation in the, in the, in the current bill. Tell us a little bit about basically the distinction between the two and then are there other parts within the government or or, or, you know, or, or government-like agencies that are out there that are kind of, you know, kind of that do complementary things to what you are all doing? Mm -hmm. Well, definitely our, our sister, brother-sister organization is AmeriCorps, um, which 
take young people typically, but, you know, of any age, and they go out into American communities and serve with nonprofits, um, you know, or, or go into um, sort of centers and, and help on, you know, anything from building trails to, um, you know, helping right now with, with vaccination. Um, they would be our, our main sister agency. There is, there are several um, organizations and, and entities that are really pushing right now for um, broader mandate for national service, be that through the military, AmeriCorps, Peace Corps, you know, or other similar type organizations. Um, I think there's just a big push right now, given everything that's going on in the world, to provide those kinds of, of opportunities and have people come together, you know, to work on these issues. Carol, quick question from Larry. Um, what, I just have a question about, let's say you're, uh, a lot of our audience are parents, and we have young adult uh, or children uh, in their late teenage years, and we're trying to encourage them um, whether to do service. And the, the Peace Corps is obviously a, a relatively small program with 7,000 people, and we've got um, you know millions in each cohort here. Um, what would... As we help our, our young adult choose uh, something to do, um, which is impactful uh, and interesting and a learning experience, how should we think about uh, finding something local here in the United States that would fit the bill um, without having to send them all the way to Malawi to make a difference, but also learn to fail and, and build skills? Well, I would first of all encourage you to consider sending them to Malawi. <laughs> it's a beautiful country with, with wonderful, wonderful people. Um, and it just it really changed my world and the world of so many. But there are opportunities all over the place for, um, for people to serve. And, you know, the thing that I would encourage for it to be a transformative experience is just to get people outside their comfort zones. You know, so do it locally in the United States, but maybe move somewhere different, um, live in a community that's different than your own, um, you know, pull yourself away from some of those safety nets and, um, you know, luxuries that, that you enjoy. And, you know, with AmeriCorps, um, you know, you also live on a, a relatively modest stipend. My daughter is serving with AmeriCorps right now, and, and she was trying to decide between, you know, getting her car fixed or, you know, going out to, to dinner, you know, for several weeks. And, you know, I mean, there, there are different things that, um, you know, you're just forced to, to live in, and walk in someone's shoes in a more fundamental way when you're doing something that's, that's more immersive and that, that puts you, you know, sort of um, allows you to experience life the way someone else experiences it. Hey, Kyle, it's Packy. My, my sister was actually a Peace Corps volunteer in Guinea, and then uh, going back on what Gunny said, now has gone back and, and runs a fintech company in Ghana. So first of all, just, you know, absolute huge fan of the program. It's, it's been transformative for her. How often do you see, instead of people coming back and getting jobs in the States, people actually going back to the country or the continent where they served and, you know, identifying opportunities in those countries to continue to make a difference? Mm -hmm. Great question, and, and thank you. Um, send my thanks to her for her service. Um, it, it happens quite frequently. Um, I wouldn't say it's the, the majority of volunteers, but there, there are always um, a few who choose to stay um, in any variety of, 
of capacities. And so many who come back to the U.S. just are fighting to, to find a way to get back. Um, they really do fall in love with the people, with a different way of life. Um, and it's, it's just very compelling um, in, in my group. So I served as a volunteer from 1994 to 96 in Romania at a small business consulting center. And we had probably four or five people from, from our group stayed there. It was, you know, four years after the fall of communism and they stayed there and, and started businesses and were very successful. Interesting. The, the, you know, kind of what, what, you know, kind of what, you know, kind of, I guess one of the things I'm sort of curious about is like, you know, how, how do you think about, or who are the politicians or who the, you know, where does the budget come from? You know, the program, I guess you said, basically, it seems like it's been pretty constant at 7,000, you know, you know, kind of like, you know, how do, you know, and how do you think, of, or how does the government think about, or how does Congress think about, you know, the, the return on, its return on investment and versus other priorities, um, and, you know, kind of, and think about sort of expanding, you know, kind of the, the, the program. Mm-hmm. Um, great question. I, I always um, hesitate to try to imagine how other people think, um, but I will say that we've had really broad bipartisan support um, for the Peace Corps. I think people um, really believe in the mission, appreciate what it does, acknowledge um, the contribution both in the country of service, but also, you know, as people come back to the U.S. and, you know, go into business or, or government positions. Um, you know, I think we could certainly expand. Um, you know, our reach, the demand is there. Um, we've got a lot of people, demand on the countryside, so we've been invited into to more countries than we're able to, to go into right now. Um, there are some barriers to, you know, different people being able to serve in the Peace Corps. I mean, as you can imagine, student loan debt is an issue for, um, for many people. Um, and, you know, there are people who are, are mid-career, um, you know, or retired that have different sorts of financial obligations. Um, so I would, I would love to see, um, you know, Peace Corps itself expanded. I would love to see companies um, offering similar types of opportunities to their employees, or you know, offering sabbatical kinds of kinds of opportunities so they can go out and do this kind of work as well. I was wondering about your advertising and what you described before about risk-taking. It reminded me of Ernest Shackleton's uh, famous advertisement for going to Antarctica. His, his advertisement read, men wanted for hazardous journey, low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, safe return doubtful, honor and recognition, and event of success. Um, what, how do you describe in your pamphlets um, that, the risk-taking associated with the Peace Corps? <laughs> That's interesting. Um, so I would not like that. Although there, there were some early on um, public service announcements, which I, which I just loved for things like, you know, we we need people with um, big hearts and strong backs, um, you know, to to serve in the Peace Corps. Um, we've gone through a whole iteration of of slogans and and messaging. Um, the toughest job you'll ever love is the one that um, you know I used in my my six minutes, and I think those of us who have have served would definitely um, you know that's what resonates with us the most. Um, and it's it's just varied over the years. Okay, um, we're going to go on to our next speaker, uh, that is Packy McCormick. Uh, Packy runs uh, the Not Boring Club, a semi-weekly newsletter on business and pop culture. Packy, why don't you go ahead? 
All right. Thanks so much for having me, Larry and Todd. And good afternoon, everyone. Uh, I'm Patrick McCormick, and I'm here to talk about kind of three connected things with the way that individuals are making a living. One is growing my newsletter, Not Boring, to 41,000 subscribers and a million-dollar revenue run rate in less than a year. Two is the creator economy more broadly. And three is how Web3 or blockchain technologies like NFTs can and will play into all of this. So first of all, uh, Larry asked me to explain how I've grown my, my newsletter. So I write a twice-weekly newsletter called Not Boring on technology companies, both big and small. This time last year, I'd quit my job. I was in the middle of starting an in-person business and COVID hit. My wife and I had also just found out that we were having our first kid. When I paused that business, the one asset I had was this newsletter that I sent mainly to friends and family with some links to things that I was reading and listening to. It had about 400 subscribers that I had built up over a year. I gave myself a couple of months to see if I could grow it and turn it into something before looking for a full-time job again and going to join another company. I changed the newsletter's name to Not Boring, I started writing long-form essays, and I set a goal of 5,000 subscribers by the end of summer. Then I'd start thinking about asking people to pay for it. By Labor Day, I had 13,000 subscribers, I had sponsors, and an active venture investing syndicate. By the end of 2020, I had 29,000 subscribers, was on pace to make more than I'd made in my last job, and had invested over $1 million into startups via the Not Boring Syndicate. Today, there are 41,000 subscribers. It's on pace to make over a million dollars from sponsorships over the next year. And the syndicate has invested over $2 million in tech companies, and I'm about to raise a small fund. The big secret to all of it and the, the hack for growing a newsletter from 400 people to 41,000 in a year is that there is no hack. I write about things that I'm perfectly, personally interested in in my own voice. There are no growth hacks. I haven't paid to acquire any subscribers, and I haven't done any outbound ad sales. The topics I cover aren't even that novel. Technology strategy is one of the most crowded categories of newsletters, and Ben Thompson is firmly locked in the top spot. But by writing about companies that fascinate me and sprinkling in some humor with the analysis, I've been able to carve out a very small niche and grow through word of mouth. Over the past month, three companies have even decided to break their fundraising news on Not Boring instead of TechCrunch, which all feels crazy to me. I'm just a random guy on the internet. There are people way smarter, and a lot of them have spoken on this call, and way more experienced than me out there. I feel lucky. A lot of Not Boring's early success can be attributed to the right place and the right time. People are stuck at home with plenty of time to read, and I was stuck at home with plenty of time to write. And there's no better time to be writing about tech than in one of the craziest tech bull markets of all time. At the same time, and more importantly, what Not Boring represents is that we're in the middle of this dramatic shift in the way that people can make a living. Instead of working for a company, a growing number of people are working for themselves as part of what Lee Jin calls the creator economy. And that's distinct from the gig economy, or if you think about an Uber driver who is a piece of modularized supply in a larger machine, the creator economy or the passion economy is all about people doing the thing that they love doing and are best at and being able to make a living out of it. The key insight of the creator economy is this. People follow people, not companies. It's always been true, and it's how we're wired. But now, there's a wave of new companies building tools that help individuals build businesses and monetize their unique skills and passions. Over just the past few months, a company called Clubhouse raised $100 million at a billion-dollar valuation. Substack is rumored to be raising at a $1 billion valuation of its own. Stripe, which underpins so much of this, just raised $600 million at a $95 billion valuation. And Twitter is really getting into the game. They acquired a newsletter platform called Review and are making a strong push towards supporting and monetizing individual creators. The list goes on, and I get pitched a new creator economy tool every day. The net result is that individuals have software at their fingertips that gives them capabilities that would have previously taken teams of people to handle. 
Previously, to set up a website, newsletter, and investing syndicate, I would have had to learn how to code or hire coders, learn Photoshop or hire designers, figure out deliverability issues, hire lawyers to handle deal documents, look up potential sponsors, and call them up on the phone or cold email them. Instead, today, I write and send a newsletter on Substack. I share what I write and engage with readers on Twitter. I invoice my sponsors on a company called Melio. I run my syndicate on AngelList, and my costs are practically zero, and I can focus all of my time and energy on researching, writing, meeting with companies, and speaking with readers. I'm not alone. Substack's top 10 writers make $15 million. YouTubers, TikTokers, Instagram influencers, and Twitch streamers also regularly make upwards of a million dollars a year. These things happen in media first because media is a relatively simple business. But creators are launching increasingly complex businesses as well. No-code tools make it any easier for anyone to build a website. Shopify makes it easier for anyone to set up an online store. And I know multiple people who have stitched together a variety of products to build software businesses that do tens of millions of dollars in revenue with just one person. I think this is just the beginning. Recently, there's been a lot of buzz around NFTs or non-fungible tokens. NFTs are a way to prove authenticity and create scarcity with digital goods. A digital artist named Beeple just sold a piece through Christie's for $69 million. And a company called NBA Top Shots sells digital video trading cards that fetch hundreds of thousands of dollars. And there are thousands of examples of recent sales of NFTs from hundreds to millions of dollars. We're almost certainly in an asset price bubble on NFTs. People almost certainly come back down to earth. This is how the hype cycle happens. But today, the underlying technology already lets creators sell directly to their audience without a middleman. And we're just at the early days of experimentation. In the next couple of weeks, I'm gonna make an essay on the creator economy as an NFT with a twist. It'll automatically split the proceeds with anyone whose work I link to in the piece. That's where I think things get really exciting, when we can figure out new ways for creating and sharing value. More money will attract more creators, and more creators will generate more creative business models by remixing the tools at their disposal. I think this trend has major implications for how people work in the future, for employment relationships, who captures the value, where people live, what people buy, and so much more. And I think over the next decade, more and more people are going to feel the same way that I have and hopefully you know, find the opportunity to work for themselves. Thank you. Thank you. Terrific. Um, I, I want to ask a first question about like self-publishing. So Amazon offered a self-publishing of books. Um, but I didn't hear anyone making a lot of money doing it. Why is self-publishing of newsletters um, a better method uh, to, to, get, to get paid? What is it about the newsletter that distinguishes it from, I'll call it the self-published book? Yeah, it's a good question. I think with the self-published book, you're still competing with the traditional system. You're competing with trying to get uh, either digital or physical shelf space to get on the New York Times bestsellers list. And, and there's a lot of kind of machinery in place around that that just benefits people who work with traditional publishers. On the newsletter side, there's not really the big incumbents. It's a real direct relationship with readers and, and you know, readers share what you write with each other. And there are platforms like Twitter or LinkedIn or Reddit that allow you to kind of connect one-on-one -on -one and build an audience uh, with fans. And so I think the distribution is easier and you're competing with uh, other individuals as opposed to competing with traditional publishers. In, in your last essay, you talk about uh, Coase's theory of the firm, and we had a chance to talk about uh, Ronald Coase's book, The Firm, last week with uh, David Weil. And just a background on what Coase said, Coase said the reason we have companies at all is because of transaction costs related to rehiring uh, workers every day. And uh, general, just a transaction cost framework 
for thinking about why we, we all, all go to the same office instead of working for ourselves independently. And I think what you're saying here is that uh, the world is heading into a world of substantially lower transaction costs in many different ways, allowing content providers to deal directly with uh, their audience. Um, and you gave a lot of different examples. How do you think about um, how individuals, particularly on the creative side, uh, can continue and to work for themselves instead of working for a third party who captures some of that benefit? Yeah, I mean, and I, I think third parties add values. Obviously, firms add, add a ton of value, and there's a reason that, that most people have, will, and will continue to work in, in firms. But I think the big change has just been the availability of software tools that make both creating and distributing work and then capturing value and, and actually getting paid much, much, much easier. That's the huge shift here is that, like I said, there's 10 different people that I would have had to work with in the past to be able to do what I do with five pieces of software today. And so I think that's a big shift. And, and if there's one piece of advice to creators or to people who are listening who want to do a side thing, I think it's really to get out and, and start experimenting and just play around with these tools. They've gotten, even in the past kind of two years that I've been starting to write, the tools have just gotten better and easier and people have gotten more receptive to uh, the work of individuals. And so I think it's really all about experimenting, finding what tools make sense for you, finding what medium makes sense for you, and then just going out and trying a bunch of new things. I think that's the best way to, to stand out. Hey, Paki, this is Sudi Mariapa. I just had a question back to this sort of creative ability for creators to expand. Does this labor market facility, do you see just, are we just seeing the first start of it? And do you see this as deflationary because we're going to open up a lot of flexibility in the labor market and potentially future supply, not only in the U.S. or globally? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the global talent question is, is a really interesting one. And I've invested in a couple of companies that are making it easier to both hire internationally and to work with international teams. And so I certainly think there's going to be, uh, you know, regardless of the greater economy, but just the, the globalization of, of talent post-COVID, I think will certainly put deflationary pressure on, on wages. What I think happens, though, in a lot of cases, and unfortunately happens in various parts of the market, is that you're, you're going to see a bifurcation, right? The person who is living in, and I'll just choose Ghana because that's, that's where my sister is, over the past um, three months, she said that the cost of an engineer, uh, a talented engineer in Ghana, has gone up 3x. And so it works both ways. Maybe in the US, uh, where people have had access to the highest paying jobs with less competition, it will be worse for wages. And globally, it, it might help uh, the more talented people access higher, more globally competitive wages. Um, but I think just generally, you know, you'll see people who are able to stand out within their particular niches, whether that's as doctors performing telemedicine across the world or whether that's somebody writing a free newsletter. Um, you know, I, I think the people who are able to stand out stand to make more than they would have before. Uh, and then it's really, I think, incumbent on the, the system and, and uh, individuals to figure out what to do about, you know, the fact that there is going to be this global marketplace for for talent, for the people who aren't able to kind of stand out as this 10x professional in their in their field. Well, Packy, this is Todd. I guess one of the things, and I guess it's uh, Professor Anita Albers at Harvard Business School has a thing around where she says basically in the digital economy, it's winner take all. And so you see that basically yeah. in you know, kind of in, in whether it's authors or, or entertainers or baseball players like Mike Trout. 
so that probably you know kind of interesting it follows it you know, kind of it, it really favors the exceptional i guess and commoditizes the average um the um I'm curious, you know, you've written and you've talked about a lot of tools, and one of the more more interesting ones, and one that was kind of near and dear to, you know, kind of the the you know mine and Larry's and Sudi's generation was Excel, that you wrote about, as you know, kind of one of the you know, kind of early tools that we all kind of came of age with. And I wonder if you might kind of share with people just a little bit about you know, kind of your essay or your, your 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 report on Excel, and you know, kind of some of the some of your insights and thoughts on on that, you know, kind of just juggernaut. For sure. So to hit the first point first, I think you're absolutely right that there is a power law. I think the way to fight that is to find your own niche, because I think niches on the Internet are so much p bigger than people expect or, or give them credit for. There's some sort of quote that's, you know, niches are bigger than you expect on the Internet, even after you expect that the niche is going to be very big or something better said than that. So I think that's the way to, to fight that is to just get really, really good at your specific niche. But certainly the average uh, is going gonna, is gonna to be hurt. Uh, on the Excel side, you know, you said that you grew up on it uh, a decade or so later. I grew up on Excel. Uh, you know, my dad grew up on Excel. So the, the thing that, that we wrote about in that piece is just the incredible staying power of this piece of software that was developed decades ago uh, and is still used and loved by so many people. There's not a single other piece of software developed when Microsoft Excel was that people right now starting out will use and come to love. There's a lot of fascinating things about Excel, one of which is that it's pretty much a full-fledged programming language where you can build a front end, which are the dashboards and the graphs. You can build uh, kind of a transformation layer that does calculations, so the calc sheet or the calcs tab uh, in your model. Um, and then you can build simple database functionality. Now, there's a bunch of issues. There's version tracking issues and data provenance issues. And so it's not perfect as a programming language, but as a simple programming language, it works. One of the other interesting things about Excel is that so much of the B2B software, which has you know, created nearly a trillion dollars worth of market cap and potentially more depending on how wide an aperture you have uh, on things that have picked up Excel, have really just come from people saying, oh, I think I could build a purpose-built piece of software that does this thing better than Excel. So you know, the early days of Salesforce, if you were running your CRM in a spreadsheet, now Salesforce is a multi-hundred billion dollar market cap company that made that uh, its own piece of, of custom-built software. And so there's more and more uh, companies that are built as people come up with creative uses for Excel. A company comes in and builds a piece of B2B software that does that one thing better. And still Excel survives and thrives as these pieces are being picked off. And so now this no-code movement, which I, I mentioned in the speech, I think is taking inspiration not from the use cases of Excel, but from what Excel does and the flexibility that it has and the ability that it, that it gives non-technical people to build all sorts of things with, outside of kind of a set, um, a set channel of parameters. So that's just a few of the interesting things about Excel. I think it was a 6,000-word essay, but I think it, it is as appreciated Packy, as it is with 700 million users, underappreciated still. Packy, just to follow up on Excel for a second, Larry. Um, so when I started at Solomon, I thought it was interesting that uh, Todd mentioned that we started using Excel. Um, when I was at Solomon, I started using Lotus 1.2.3 as our software program for doing spreadsheets. Um, and then I would think in something like 1994, we transferred over to Excel. So there was uh, seven years of Lotus 1.2.3 for me until I made the switch. Um, and then just, I think what's interesting is just this week, um, I have five interns for what happens next. And we try to figure out like what authors to have. And my interns encouraged me to use uh, Google Docs 
a spreadsheet so that we could all use the same spreadsheet in real time and, and be cognizant of changes. Do you think that there's a chance that Excel could end up losing out to a Google spreadsheet? Uh, and I guess there were two things that I thought were interesting about it. One, it was free, so the price was different. And second was is that we could all make changes immediately um, and then have it, the result be aware to all of us at the same time. Excel is some sort of a closed system and is expensive. Uh, students are using this Google uh, document as well. Your thoughts on free and um, immediacy? Yeah, so it's, it's interesting because I've had this conversation with so many ex-finance people who have gone into the startup world. And to a person, they all are total Excel adherents and loyalists. So I think you know, Google Sheets probably gets you to 80% of the functionality of Excel, but the people who are used to, to working in Excel just love working in Excel. You can do more powerful things. It's a little bit faster because it is offline uh, and people are just used to the very particular functions that they like using. Google copies a lot of them and still, uh, you know, people who, who really love Excel and need to do it for, uh, for more hardcore use cases stick with Excel. I think that Google Sheets certainly picks off a lot of the simpler use cases. So when you're making a list that you want to share with people, Either you go with Google Sheets or you go with something like Airtable, which is essentially just taking the database functionality of Excel and putting it in a more structured format and has become a multi-billion dollar business. I, I consider Google Sheets kind of somewhere in between the two of those things. I also would say that I think, you know, if it were a different CEO at the helm of Microsoft, I'd be a little more concerned. But I feel like Satya Nadella is doing such a good job at, at kind of bringing Microsoft forward and and, and keeping Microsoft uh, up to date that I feel like they'll have a, uh, a solution that rivals the, the good parts of Google Sheets in the not so distant future. I, I don't love Office, Office 365 yet, but um, I, I feel like they'll, they'll be able to get to kind of feature parity on the collaboration side with, with uh, Sheets. You mentioned uh, some of the programs or software that you use to start your new business that were very effective. Um, and I wanted you to expand on that, and I thought I would open with something to help me expand on, on what happens next. So uh, a number of the listeners said they would prefer to read a transcript than to listen to an audio. And I had one of my interns investigate the matter with an artificial intelligence solution. And we got back what, what happens next episode, and it was complete garbage. It was not a usable <laughs> framework. So um, someone recommended uh, Rev.com, and I sent... Um, the what happens next audio to rev.com and then you know literally two and a half hours later up for a two-hour show um, I would get a copy of a transcript um, that was nearly perfect nearly um, but a workable project I would say it was like 99.9 percent .9 perfect uh, but still required um, some reading and editing um, rev.com uses freelancers to do their transcripts um, effectively allowing them to use everyone in the world to help uh, in this process uh, for pay. Um, I was amazed by Rev.com. Of the choices that you mentioned, I had never heard of, I actually don't know any of the things that you've discussed. What would you describe as this piece of software that you thought was the most incredible in terms of enhancing your own productivity? Sure. So there's, there's a couple, neither of which uh, I mentioned directly. Uh, because they're not core to what I do, but are just absolutely incredible pieces of software. The first is Figma. So Figma is to uh, 
Adobe Photoshop as, and then the Creative Suite as Google Sheets is to Microsoft Excel. So it's collaborative um, and it's flexible. And somebody like me who's not a designer is able to hop onto Figma and make, they're, they're not great graphics by any stretch of the imagination, but I can, I can at least make graphics and, and uh, things that I drop in. And, and Figma is this company, other company that's valued at a couple of billion dollars and is going to be worth, I think, a whole lot more. So Figma is one. More closely uh, comparable to, to Rev.com is a piece of software called Descript that is one of the most magical pieces of software that, that I use. So because my essays are five to 6,000 words long, I'll, I'll read uh, most of them and turn them into an audio version just for the people who don't want to read five to 6,000 words every week. Um, and as I'm reading, it transcribes along with me, and then I can edit it like a text document. So I can delete words, I can copy and move things to different places. This also, and I haven't tried it, but also apparently works really, really well with video, where you can just like you would a Word doc, copy, paste, delete, type, do all of these things, and it, it makes the audio or the video kind of match the, the thing that you have down in the doc. So Descript, I think, just in terms of blow your mind magic as a piece of software, I think Descript is probably top of the list there. Can I just go over that one more second? Because I'm not sure I understood it completely. So you write your 5,000 words, and then I guess a freelancer would uh, turn into an audio version. And then how do you take that audio version and edit it ex post? So this is this this speaks to the non-scalability of, of what I'm doing right now. So I, instead of a freelancer, I you know I send it nine o'clock on Monday mornings. Uh, I sit there at six thirty a.m. on Monday morning and actually just read my whole essay um, into Descript. And so Descript is what I use to record. And then as I'm recording, maybe with a two to five second delay, the words are showing up on a piece of paper there you know on a document in front of me, and I can copy, paste, delete, start over, drop in music, do all sorts of things, and automatically it's updating the, the text and then the audio alongside it. It also has a feature where you know, I could just dump in the whole essay, and if I've recorded, it's a pretty long recording that you have to do, maybe five minutes, but it captures your voice and the way that you express different things, and so it will actually, if I wanted to, it's a little uncanny right now, but it would read back the thing that I wrote in my own voice, and then I could edit from there uh, as well. So it, it's able to go both ways. So, Packy, Sudi again. Hey, then for your next uh, post, you're going to put down these productivity tools and uh, that us middle-agers can use. Uh, so so I, I'm hitting my one-year anniversary next week, so I think I'm going to do a little behind-the-scenes on, on the, whole, the whole shebang. Uh, and so I'll definitely include the tools that I use. Just following up with that previous example about Figma, this uh, equivalent to the Adobe Photoshop. So what do you do? Let's say you want some graphic design. Do you, you basically write words, I would be interested in a graphic design that looks like this, and then some freelancer or a group of freelancers respond with, how about that? What, what, what is, can you explain that in a little bit more detail? I don't fully understand it. Sorry. So yeah, Figma Figma's different. Figma is just like... Um, just like Adobe, except it's and now Adobe has collaborative tools as well. This was built first as a web tool with collaboration built in. And so if I am, you know, I, I use it just in single player mode. So I'm in there, you know, editing photos and adding words to pictures and doing very, very basic things. But real design teams will use them to 
build interactive mockups that they can give to their product manager. The product manager can leave comments. They can both be in there talking at the same time, and the designer can make tweaks in real time. And so it just makes the design process a whole lot more collaborative, and it opens up the ability for more people on the team to be designers. It's, it's relatively, uh, relatively cheap software. It's relatively easy to at least get a basic understanding. So even a non-designer, a product manager, an engineer, somebody can go in and mock up very roughly what they want and then share it with the designer as well. So it, it just makes that whole process a lot more, uh, a lot more frictionless by letting more people into it. Packy, one of the things I'm sort of curious if you might share just some things that you think that like and kind of Larry's you know, kind of the listeners and us on the call, like what sorts of things should we be paying attention to or that you feel that like the world just isn't paying enough attention to or, you know, or maybe paying too attention or maybe paying too much attention to uh, and, you know, kind of and, and don't worry about that or don't spend time on it. That's a head fake. I'm just sort of curious about you know, kind of some of your thoughts in, in that regard. So that's a very good question. Um, I mean, I think specifically related to this topic, certainly from the outside before I was in it, I would hear the words creator economy or creator, and I, was, I would think somebody on Instagram selling flat tummy tees or some T-shirt, and you know, it, it's, that's, that's what I viewed as a creator. I think more and more and more people are able to do things that resemble real businesses, or there are doctors on YouTube who uh, are building up the following and not giving medical advice, but giving some... Uh, kind of broad health advice. And so I think more and more creator is seeping into a lot of categories and becoming more than just someone who, who looks pretty uh, in a picture and, and can sell things. And so those businesses are getting more and more complex. I just touched on it briefly at the end, and I've been broadly curious in crypto for a while, but very confused about how it's actually going to be practical because there haven't been strong use cases because Bitcoin pretty much is just money. It's just, you know, if, if, um, Bitcoin is kind of artificial narrow intelligence. There are other blockchains like the Ethereum blockchain, which a lot of people are building on top of now. It's really its purpose is to let people build kind of AGI or you know general intelligence type applications on top of it and do all sorts of different things. So I think the head fake right now is I probably wouldn't go out and spend millions of dollars a piece uh, on a piece of digital art, but I think there's really interesting things happening with the underlying technology itself with how groups of people are able to organize and align incentives. There's a lot of the best engineers that I know, a lot of people uh, who are interested in economics, all kind of moving towards the blockchain. And obviously part of that is that Bitcoin hit $60,000 and there's a lot of money in, in being uh, proficient uh, in the blockchain right now. But I think it's this longer term thing where, I don't know, I haven't seen as much kind of creative energy or speed uh, in the in the traditional web, as I have uh, in the things that people are building on top of the blockchain now, and this is coming from someone who was very skeptical even three months ago and remains skeptical, just the speed at which they're able to build because some it's open source with money built in essentially, and so because everything's out in the open, because everything that one person builds becomes a building block for the thing that the next person wants to build, people are just moving really really quickly uh, in that part of the internet. And so I'd say that's something to maybe ignore the current hype, but definitely look a few levels deeper at, at what people are building uh, on top of the blockchain. You talked about Substack as a place um, to distribute, uh, I'll call it independent writing. Uh, I'm not sure many of our, our listeners know what Substack is or how important it has become. Um, can you, and how, how you make money by writing creative materials that will be read on this platform. Sure. So Substack is a very simple 
um, newsletter publishing platform. It has a text editor. It has an, you know, the ability to capture emails, and it has some very, very simple analytics and the ability to hit send and, and reach your audience. Um, Substack has grown incredibly fast. There's been a little controversy around them recently because they've been paying authors uh, advances to come over from traditional publications to write on Substack. Nothing inherently wrong with that, but doing that while trying to play the unbiased platform card, I think, has created uh, a little bit of tension. Substack's core belief is that advertising has really made the discourse on the internet uh, toxic and clickbaity, and that that you know by making media subscription-based and letting fans pay writers directly, uh, they can they can improve the discourse and improve the civility on the internet. I've built my whole business on Substack without ever charging anybody in the audience a dollar for it, so I've actually paid Substack zero dollars. Their their model is when there's a subscription that goes through their system, they take a 10% cut and then Stripe on top of that takes their 2.9%. So the author is left with 87% of the revenue that they get. Instead of that, I've just directly gone to sponsors, most of whom are readers of the newsletter, and I, I charge in two different ways. I have a traditional like you'd read top of the email sponsorship with 100, 150 words uh, that then links to somebody's product. And then the thing that's been most fascinating to me is that I do these sponsor deep dives where a company pays me money to write a full post like any one of my other posts, but on the company and I'm able to be critical where I think there's criticisms to be made. I'm very upfront with the audience about the fact that I am getting paid and I have a filtering process that's very similar to my investment filtering process. I don't wanna write about a company if it's, you know, I don't think it's the best in class in the space, if I don't think the space itself or the company itself is interesting. And because of that, I've been able to, to find this really great model where somehow people don't mind the sponsored content and they like it. And Ben Thompson, the, the stratechery writer actually said on his podcast that, you know, it, there's advantages to my particular model because um, I'm able to get access to companies that you otherwise wouldn't get on private companies to their financials and their strategy and their leadership teams and all of that. Um, and then the company gets this kind of full deep dive that not only drives clicks to their site and drives sales, but attracts investors and attracts hires and has all of these other benefits of having a well-done piece of writing out on the internet uh, about the company. So I've, I've gone around the subscription model and just doing the numbers, it's worked a heck of a lot better than subscriptions would have for me. Thank you. All right, we're gonna move on to our final speaker, uh, Gunny Scarfo, who is the co-founder of Nonfiction Research. He'll be discussing violating the norms of traditional market research. Go ahead, Gunny. Thanks, Larry. Uh, the market research industry, which is to say basically studying what consumers think and feel and want, is a $73 billion industry. The insights that come out of this act of studying what people think and feel and want shape practically every aspect of our commercial life. So it shapes the products that get made, the features that those products have, the services that get offered and how they get offered. Uh, the way the whole ad industry uh, talks to customers. Uh, customer research is at the top of the cascade of business, right? It is the antecedent. It is the predecessor. So every elevator button you push, every customer service call you make, every web page you pull up, every store aisle you walk down, every app you download, every ad you see, every home that you live in, and every item that you buy is shaped by the insights and the findings of studying people through market research. 
And yet, this $73 billion industry of market research barely scratches the surface of the hidden emotional lives of people, which, guess what, are the actual thing that is driving behavior a lot of the time. So how often when you are uh, looking at market research or consumer research, do you see it delving into uh, shame or embarrassment or the ambition to prove that you're worthwhile to your parents <laughs> uh, or your uh, disappointment in your own moments of parenting? Like these emotions drive buying behavior around so many verticals, so many categories. Uh, how often do you see uh, crying or masturbating in a research report? Uh, we actually had one recently uh, around Spotify behavior that involved people crying while masturbating to give you a sense of uh, the direction this stuff is heading. So here's a tangible example of why those kinds of like hidden private emotional lives actually shape business. So consider a category like home improvement or DIY. 45% uh, of people who are doing a DIY project have been so frustrated doing the project that they have either shouted profanity or broken down into tears. Uh, one person that we talked to confessed that uh, while she was trying to tile around the sink in her kitchen, uh, she had a meltdown uh, her friend found her in the bathroom sobbing. Now, if you've ever done a home improvement project or DIY, like this is not a foreign concept to you that you've been like pissed off, disappointed, or been at some point where you were either hesitant to begin the project or you uh, didn't want to continue or you weren't sure how to continue. This is not something that you see in Lowe's ads or Home Depot's ads. This is a private part of the DIY experience, the customer journey, if you will. And customer frustration is a direct impediment to revenue for home improvement stores. Uh, we estimate that that number is in the high hundreds of millions of dollars a year annually. So if you step back and think about this, like understanding customers, this act that sits atop the cascade of our entire commercial system has neglected a large swath of the actual reasons that people buy or don't buy. So on the surface, when you look at market research today, due to the increase in data analytics, market research looks much more sophisticated than it did in the 1950s. But if you look at what market research, like the kinds of questions that are being asked in the areas in which people are going, uh, we're still like in the age of TV dinners. So there's a new generation of small renegade research companies. Uh, we are only one of, uh, of several who focus on diving in, uncovering these emotions, having people tell us things that they sometimes don't even tell their closest friends, and then tying these insights back to companies making profitable business decisions. So how do we do that? We do it a bunch of ways. Uh, some of them include uh, conducting confessional interviews with people where the interviewer is opening up about their own vulnerable emotions and experiences just as much as the respondent. Uh, we use evocative exercises to get people to talk about deeper or darker experiences that they've had. Um, we work with the private lives of others, uh, like basically people who see into the private lives of other people, everyone from therapists and sociologists to male and female escorts. Uh, and we often will even just sit with people um, and sort of observe their everyday lives to see the stuff that they wouldn't normally tell us. And at the end, we run these quantitative studies to ensure 
that the insights that we find are not just one-off things, but are actually significant enough to report. And uh, God bless my co-founder, Ben Zeidler, a uh, former Gartner guy for making sure that that part goes smoothly. So our company alone is already performing this kind of work for FICO, Goldman, Disney, Viacom, and more. And there are other companies like ours that are doing this kind of work with Google, Spotify, and others. So what happens next? Uh, from, from our perspective, over the next five years or so, we talked about that cascade where these insights filter down. You're going to see these deeper, darker insights start to fall down that cascade from market research into business strategy, service design, marketing, and it's going to slowly start to reshape uh, everything that we touch and everything that we invest in. Connie, thank you. That's some pretty crazy stuff. I'm going to try to bring in some uh, other speakers we've talked to in the past uh, as something to think about. So a couple weeks ago, we had Todd's friend Michael Duda on the phone, and he mentioned that there's a change going on as it relates between the relationship between the consumer and the, the company selling the goods. So it is an example, the relationship between uh, Gillette Shavers, uh, you know, the, the Mach 3 department, and the, the individual who's actually shaving uh, are coming together more closely because of a decline in the transaction costs related to communication. So uh, where before Gillette would never know who buys their razors, um, today you can, it, it is a possibility you can deal directly with them and then answer questions that people have related to, uh, you know, the shaver's not working for me in the following ways, et cetera. How do you see... Um, companies engaging directly with their consumer. It seems to me that if, if I hired you to work at Procter & Gamble, how would you help them um, in their direct communications with their consumers to find out what they want or what's not working for them? Uh, first of all, Duda is a great guy. Uh, that's, that's a great guest to have. Uh, second, um, I think there are a couple different ways to go about it because I mean, it's always amusing to me when I hear people who don't work in business, uh, but describing companies as these like uh, evil, powerful corporations who are like controlling people's minds. Whereas the reality of it uh, is that companies are scrambling to understand uh, the shifts that are going on and what people are thinking and feeling, what they want to buy and why they're doing this. And um, so I, there's that, that hunger is something that I think is not appreciated by people outside of business. Um, in terms of the how, I'd say there are two, two broad ways to go about it. One is uh, the opposite of what nonfiction does, but is really valuable. Um, and that's there are tons of little like software tools uh, that you can use to run like uh, quick customer feedback sorts of things. Like you may have seen, uh, and I don't know the name of the company who does this, but uh, you may have seen in like live events. Remember live events? Uh, there's like a like a happy face button and a grumpy face button or that sort of thing. Like uh, like when you're waiting in line. Um, and you see the same thing online, and there are a bunch of like quick survey tools that people use um, to just get like a, a quick pulse about something really specific, um, and that's that's valuable in when when it's used the right way. 
The other way um, is, is a deeper exploration, um, something that, that a company would be willing to spend uh, a month or two months or several months and uh, $50,000, dollars $200,000 on, which is <clears throat> diving deep, deep, deep into spending time with people and uh, understanding the things that might not show up if you give somebody a three-minute web survey kind of a thing. Um, and so I think, like, the was research used to be one thing, it's now bifurcating into do you want it fast and, and easy or do you want it, uh, like, deep and long? This is starting to sound weird. Uh, but th those two options are, they're, they're both good in their place. And I think anything in the middle is going to start to get, uh, I don't know, effaced. Interesting. I want to ask Kenny, about, go ahead, go ahead, Todd. I was going to say, basically, Kenny, I'm curious, you know, one of the things you have written about is the financial service industry, which you kind of, you know, at least uh, you kind of, the, the three of us have come out of. Um, and I'm curious, you know, kind of if you think about it today, and it's remarkable to me that, you know, that PayPal is worth more than Goldman Sachs plus Citigroup combined, or that Stripe is worth almost as much as Goldman Sachs. And I know that you did a lot of work around kind of, you know, kind of like, you know, kind of the, the financial service industry. I'm sort of curious about, you know, kind of some of your insights there that you might share. Sure. Uh, we gave a keynote talk uh, maybe a month ago at a FICO conference. Uh, based on a report that we wrote with FICO um, called What Bank Customers Want But Aren't Getting or something like that, uh, which itself was inspired by a report that we published a couple of years ago called The Secret Financial Lives of Americans. And I think everybody on this call has read 8,000 reports entitled like The Future of Financial Services. And when you look at it within uh, retail banking especially, um, like innovation in retail banking looks like uh, like let's leave the bank open an extra couple of hours or uh, like how do we improve mobile check deposit and and that stuff does matter it's not it's not insignificant um, but I, I don't think you're you're going to see people flocking from one bank to another based on like a marginally better mobile check deposit uh, through through the app so. We spent a lot of time talking to people about the parts of money that you're not supposed to talk about in public. We talked to them about shopping addiction. We talked about how spending is often done for emotional, self-medicating reasons. Uh, we talked about status anxiety, wondering uh, if you have enough or seeing other people buy things um, and uh, wondering if you should be buying that thing. Uh, great book by uh, Alain de Baton, however he pronounces his name on status anxiety, uh, worth a read for anyone. Um, uh, you see people wondering whether they're earning enough, like they don't know if they're being paid fairly, uh, especially women uh, who deeply suspect that they're not being paid fairly, um, but often aren't exactly sure of the numbers about it. Uh, people uncertain about how to use debt. So just when you talk to everyday people, this is what they talk to you about when you talk about money. And then when you go back to your financial service company, be it a, a retail bank or whatever, um, uh, the, they're looking for these opportunities to differentiate and to offer new services, which will either attract or retain customers. And so 
in short, the, the stuff that we published with FICO uh, found that uh, most bank customers would uh, abandon their current bank and open a, at least open a new account at a new bank. Um, if the banks were to offer services that helped with these things that they already are stressed out about with money. Um, and so, so for instance, the, the, go ahead. I just wanted to follow up with uh, something that Carol mentioned in her talk as it relates to you. She mentioned um, the excitement of going into the unknown and pushing yourself into an uncomfortable situation to learn. And it's ironic that the example you gave was uh, a person who goes out of their comfort zones to tile their bathroom. And they find themselves, you know, failing and uh, tears running yeah. down the side of their face. Um, where failure should be encouraged and failure is just part of life. Um, how, you know, by the way, I totally sympathize with that person who's tiling uh, their bathroom and failing. I could see that happening to me, no question. Um, and yet you're saying this is an opportunity for um, Home Depot to take advantage of those tiers. I think if Home Depot articulated that before they started the project, there was a good chance you might end up in tears, I think that would hurt sales. Um, but how do you advertise to them by not doing the former, but doing the latter, which is now that you're crying because of the tiles, we're here to help and we can help solve the problem. How do you, how do you cut that very thin problem, thin edge? Yeah, first of all, I'd actually, uh, here, here's my controversial take for the day, is I'd actually challenge that, uh, that what you're taking is axiomatic in that I think we're all taught when we go into business, whatever the business is that like what we're selling is happiness. You got to like make people happy and don't, don't ever let some, uh, uh, you know, unpleasant emotion come to the surface. But um, I think you also see that a lot of times there's a, a level of emotional realism that can work, which is not that you like, not that Home Depot should be depressing you with their commercials, but uh, we did see that a large number of homeowners said they'd be more motivated to tackle home projects if they had a better understanding of the challenges that they're going to hit along the way. Uh, and uh, close to 40% found that uh, the depictions of home projects that they see in commercials or even in social media channels uh, are unrealistic and that that unrealistic thing is a demotivator for them. And uh, here you go, 35% uh, of homeowners are procrastinating on a home project right now for reasons other than money. So all those people should be out of store right now. And so uh, I think actually if these, uh, just the stores are, are one angle, but if they were able to uh, close the gap between the happy washed, hey, get it done notion of uh, do-it-yourself stuff and a more realistic thing, um, I think there's a good bet that they could uh, figure that out and translate some of that into revenue. All right. This is the part of the show where I try to end on a note of optimism. Uh, historically, during COVID, we get depressed, we get angry, uh, we get frustrated, and even during what happens next, some of the audience, uh, some of our speakers could be quite negative. That wasn't so much the case today, but needless to say, I'm going to keep the tradition and try to end on a note of optimism. So I'm going to ask uh, each of the speakers to end on something positive. Gunny, I'll start with you. Uh, what are you positive about and optimistic about based upon uh, 
what you're talking about. Um, I'm optimistic uh, that that these sort of areas of life that we kept hidden, uh, think about like what life was like in the 50s versus what it is today, are, are starting to come out and they're they're making it okay to um, to, to be this way socially, and uh, the companies are starting to recognize that there's actually profits to be made um, by being more emotionally realistic. Thank you. Packy, what are you optimistic about? I'm optimistic about so much. I think this is part of my challenge. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic based on today's talk that more and more people are going to be able to make a real significant, not kind of sacrificing income for doing what they love, but making more money doing the thing that they love and sharing that with the world. So I, I think that's a, a great place uh, for the world to be moving. Carol? So I think about how every country around the world has been impacted by COVID. This is an experience, like a shared experience um, around the world, which is really profound. Um, and all of the social unrest, protests, um, you know, other things that have been happening as a result of COVID are really challenging us all to disrupt the status quo and to seek transformational change. And I am optimistic that we will uh, re-emerge, we will re-engage with the world in a more thoughtful, respectful approach, um, and really recognize how interconnected we are. Uh, Dr. Katz, Dr. David Katz, what are you optimistic about? I think, Larry, there is a confluence of new necessities and new inventions, and that's opening up a whole new world of opportunity. We talked about both along the way. So, you know, the, the new necessities are not just we need to take better care of ourselves, eat better, because we could avoid chronic disease, premature death. But the way we eat has a massive impact on the planet and climate and, and biodiversity. But we can even expand beyond my field. The fundamental threat to the, you know, advancing the human condition is failure to recognize what we know is true. And that's the threat in politics and that's the threat in our pandemic response. And so it's really just one problem, one necessity. And the new inventions are things that were discussed throughout by everybody on this call. New technologies, new ways of reaching people, new ways of assessing people, giving them information that's not only right, but actually reaches them and makes a difference. And so I think those two things are coming together in a way where a, a magnitude of change that wasn't possible before now is. Thank you. Um, all right, that ends today's show. I just want to uh, highlight what's going to happen in the weeks ahead. Uh, I'm taking uh, next Sunday off. There will be no what happens next on Easter Sunday, uh, but we'll be back the week after that. Uh, our guests will include Dan Willingham. He's a cognitive psychologist um, at the University of Virginia. His expertise is on cognition. Uh, then we have Simon Baron Cohn. That's Sasha's brother. Uh, he has a book entitled The Pattern Seekers, How Autism Drives Human Invention. Uh, Brandy Stellings will discuss uh, board governance uh, and women. Uh, Noel Rothman, who's a commentary writer, will, uh, will have a discussion about his book, Unjust, and uh, so, uh, what's wrong with social justice. And finally, uh, Nicholas Varen uh, will discuss European banks uh, and what's going on in European politics. All right, that ends today's session. I want to thank our speakers for their time and their insights. 
and our listeners for their listening and participation. As always, thank you very much, and you may get disconnected this time. Have a great day. Bye-bye.